Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Today is September 12th, 2022. And in today's episode, I want to discuss an article that I read yesterday in the Wall Street Journal that really piqued my interest and dovetails with what I have been leading up to, which is a discussion of the work of this transformation committee. And I've kind of outlined the first couple of episodes for that transformation committee analysis. And the first episode is going to talk about about an affiliation that the Transformation Committee has with the NCAA's Master Spin Doctor, Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc., and the influence that that a very sophisticated, well-connected, inside-the-beltway public relations firm has had on the messaging, the overall messaging and the coordination of all of the moving parts in the NCAA's campaign to end the athletes' rights movement. And a crucial component of that campaign at the public relations level is to get powerful megaphones in America's quarters of power, including the mainstream media, to repeat and reinforce false narratives. And that has been one of the primary themes of my work, my research, my blogging, and now my podcasting. And it is such a powerful dynamic in the way that Americans think about big-time college sports, and most particularly the relationship between the athletes who provide all the value, the football and men's basketball players, and the broad array of institutional and corporate interests that benefit from that labor. And that tension has really been the defining characteristic of big-time college sports going back to the beginning of the television era in the 1950s. And yesterday, which was Sunday, I was reading the Wall Street Journal and I came across an article on their sports page. They have one page or a portion of one full page that they devote to sports. And often uh, in the Sunday paper, you get an article that's a little more in-depth, a little more detail-oriented, or involves some actual investigative reporting. And yesterday's article covered about, I don't know, 60, 65% of a full page. It's about a 1,250-word article. It's fairly in-depth. And the title of the article is The Transfer Frenzy That Is Turning College Football Rosters Upside Down. And then there's a subtitle, and it says, High roster turnover is a recent phenomenon in the sport. And then there is a large photograph of Lincoln Riley, who, as of this year, is the head coach at the University of Southern California, USC. He left Oklahoma last year for the bright lights of LA. And next to Riley is his star quarterback, Caleb Williams, who transferred from Oklahoma to USC. But I wanted to talk about this title, the transfer frenzy that is turning college sports rosters upside down. And I I think that when you take that in, just the headline and then the sub headline, what do you conclude? What are you led to believe? What is the purpose of that headline? It certainly jumped out to me as a tad leading, (laughs) but I see these things a little bit differently than most people. So I went to the expert in our household and That is my wife, who knows very little about college sports, and she suffers my conversations occasionally, but I don't think she's that interested in it, quite frankly. But I I showed her the article, and I asked her, I said, just read the headline and the subheadline, and I want you to tell me what your impression is. What do you get from that? 
headline. So she looked over the headline and then thought for a minute and then gave me a puzzled look and said, I conclude from that headline that transfers in college football are a problem. College football players transferring is a bad thing. Well, of course, that's the logical conclusion from this headline. And that is what whoever drafted this headline, I don't know how the editorial process works at the Wall Street Journal, but this is clearly designed to suggest that the transfer market is a big, big problem. The content of the article doesn't quite support that, as I'm going to discuss here in a minute, but that's what the Wall Street Journal wants the reader to take away. And I think that's particularly true for the reader who doesn't have an in-depth understanding of all of the issues swirling around college sports, particularly as it relates to the hot-button issues of name, image, and likeness and this new transfer market. And I'm not suggesting that the Wall Street Journal is in some conspiracy with Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc. or the uh, NCAA propaganda machine at the national office and all of its component parts. What I am suggesting is that the narrative narratives that that public relations propaganda machine spits out and reinforces are accepted so quickly that you have this circular reamplification that sometimes is the product of just assuming that these narratives are legitimate. And I think that's what happened with this article. This suggests to me that this author and then the editorial decision makers feel the same way about these hot button issues that the NCAA and all of their spin doctors want the media to think about these issues. And at its most fundamental level, articles like this, headlines like this, are very effective in shaping public opinion because people who don't know that much about college sports will read a headline like this and say, transfer equals bad. They've done the same thing with this name, image, and likeness market. Name, image, and likeness freedom, an open market, this wild west of chaos and uh, uncertainty, that that is a bad thing. So nil equals bad, transfer equals bad. And if the NCAA and Bully Pulpit Interactive and all the in-house propagandists at the NCAA have been successful in influencing a powerful media outlet like the Wall Street Journal to just spit out a false talking point and a false narrative, that's a huge win for the NCAA and their spin machine. And beyond that sort of binary good versus bad impression, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other themes that I believe are suggested and reinforced at a very subtle level by this kind of narrative. So yeah, we, transfers are bad. That's clear. But why? And the way that this headline is written and the way that the article is constructed, you get the sense that mobility in the transfer market in big time football, and this relates only to Power 5 football, as I'm going to explain in a minute. That's what the Wall Street Journal was talking about. The high stakes football at the highest level, the NFL-like product that is evolving right now. But the suggestion is that mobility is bad. And then the the question I would ask is, bad for whom? Is it bad for the athletes? Is it really bad for the coaches or the institutions? And that leads to another subtle theme. And that is that the way that the Wall Street Journal characterizes this issue and frames it, it places the interests of the institutions above the interests of the athletes. And that's another important narrative that the NCAA and their spin doctors want 
want the public to believe that these institutional interests are so important and are at risk in this unregulated transfer and nil market. And we have to come in and protect the institutions first. Then the other thing that I think is suggested here is that in this market, this transfer market, it's the athletes that are the problem, not the institution's decision-making, not the business model they've created, not coaches jumping from one school to another to take the money. And in that narrative, you have another subtle normative narrative that is brought in, and that is this loyalty issue. And you hear people like Nick Saban and some of the conference commissioners and some of the propagandists for the NCAA really talking about this transfer issue in terms of loyalty. You know, you committed to a school, you're committed to a program, you committed to a set of principles and, and ideals. And when you just jump ship, you're showing that you are disloyal. You're, you were not a team player. You are the problem. And I think that that particular dynamic, that narrative has the effect of delegitimizing these athletes. And it also, I think, is a firewall to looking honestly at the athletes' interests here and what the motivations are for these athletes to transfer. And then there's another important theme that is really reinforced by omission, which you don't talk about, which often is as persuasive and powerful as what you do talk about. But what we don't have in this article is any discussion on the differences between the transfer market for big-time football, for Power 5 football, and the transfer market in other sports or the transfer market for students more broadly outside of the athletics context. So we have this false world that's being created, this world that has been defined by very narrow boundaries. And the, uh, the in-system stakeholder narrative makers, they want you to see this issue only in the box of big-time football. And this is a problem that is unique to big-time football, and we need to fix it, and we need to fix it now. And how is it that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the NCAA, the Power Five, all their corporate interests, how do they want to fix it? They want to do that through a congressional bailout that would essentially immunize the decision makers in college sports right now, the Power Five and the NCAA, from any potential liability in imposing limitations and restrictions on the market in big time football and big time men's basketball. And I've talked quite a bit about this in other episodes. They would get that federal protection and that, those immunities uh, three ways. One, through federal preemption of state laws that interfered with the NCAA's regulatory authority or compensation limits. They would uh, get antitrust immunity so that athletes couldn't sue the NCAA. And there have been lawsuits filed over the old transfer limitations as a violation of uh, antitrust laws and free competition laws. And then also uh, a provision that athletes can't be employees. And that would prevent athletes from unionizing and trying to force the institutional stakeholder beneficiaries to a bargaining table. And that is the true backdrop, the true context for articles like this. And this type of article that the Wall Street Journal put out yesterday plays right into the NCAA Power Five's sky is falling narratives. And it reinforces this sense of urgency to get a handle on this out of control transfer market, this frenzy that's not only turning college football rosters upside down, but college football itself. This is an existential threat to this product that America loves so much. That's the message. So 
let me just do a quick thumbnail sketch of the lay of the land when it comes to transfers and how athletes have been treated historically prior to the liberalization of the transfer rules. But traditionally, you had uh, five sports that were governed by very strict limitations on transfer. You had uh, baseball, ice hockey, men's and women's basketball, and importantly, football. And in those five sports, if an athlete wanted to transfer prior to the relaxation of these rules, they had to sit out a year. There was a penalty for transferring. And an athlete wanting to transfer had to ask for permission from the, the school that he currently was attending. And if the school said no, then the only option would be to apply for a hardship waiver to the NCAA. And those were granted inconsistently. And it was just a huge mess of red tape that an athlete had to go through to avoid this one-year penalty. And that is a substantial penalty. But in these other sports, field hockey, Cross country, golf, soccer, volleyball, beach volleyball, you name it. Those athletes could transfer as often as they wanted to. There were no transfer limitations. So you have to ask yourself, why these five sports? Why hockey and baseball and men's and women's basketball and football? And the reason for that is that those five sports are the only sports that have produced any net revenue. And of those five sports singled out for disparate treatment, only two really important, and that's football and men's basketball, because the revenue from those two sports underwrite the entire sports industrial complex. So when you look at that differential treatment, it reveals the truth of the motivations among big-time college sports decision makers, and that is to control the labor pool. The reason that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the Power Five and the NCAA want people to think that mobility in the market in, in football and men's basketball is a problem is because they want absolute iron-fisted control over the labor pool, including the mobility to move from one school to another. And over the last four years, the NCAA has very slowly relaxed some of the restrictions on transfers. Last year, for the first time ever, it allowed a one-time transfer for athletes in these five sports who had been subject to these really oppressive limitations and penalties. And I think some of that was the product of the long-standing criticism and pressure the NCAA has been under to look at this really from an equity standpoint. But there's also a political motivation here as well. And that is that what the NCAA really wants are these federal protections and immunities. And they tried to run that through their campaign for quote quote, nil compensation beginning in 2019. That got a lot of pushback from certain senators in 2020 and 2021. And then in some of these Republican-sponsored NCAA-friendly bills, this new one-time transfer was included as a, quote, unquote, benefit for athletes. But that was an illusion because those bills also included these three federal protections and immunities that, if granted, would have allowed the NCAA and the Power Five to do whatever the hell they wanted to on transfer or nil or anything else in college sports without fear of consequence, without having to worry about whether they were going to be defending a lawsuit. And uh, as we now know, the wheels on that congressional campaign came off in the summer of 2021, and the NCAA didn't get 
all these federal protections and immunities, but it put itself out there on this transfer issue. And now the NCAA and Power Five are trying to reposition on the transfer issue. And it is now the new boogeyman along with nil. That is the new justification for returning to Congress to get the same protections and immunities that it was seeking in 2019, 2020, and 2021. All right. So let me just do a quick tour of this article to give you a sense of what it covers and how it positions this broad theme that this new transfer market's a real problem for college football. So it begins. Southern California's first scoring drive in the new season last weekend was a telling snapshot of college football in 2022. The quarterback, a transfer from Oklahoma, handed off to a running back who transferred from Oregon and threw to a former Memphis wideout before finding a former Pitt wide receiver in the end zone. They're all among 26 new players the Trojans imported from other schools under new coach Lincoln Riley, filling out a roster that also lost 19 players to transfers. The author then says, USC is an extreme example of the transfer craze, turning college football into a confusing nationwide game of musical chairs that is hard even for the most dedicated fans to follow. So that's a great uh, opening. You know, it's a well-phrased opening to grab attention. But Uh, That little aside that this is an extreme example is just overwhelmed by the hyperbole in that opening setup. And then the author pivots to the the subheading theme, and that is that this high roster turnover is a recent phenomenon in college sports and talks about the restrictions in the past and kind of the history of the evolution of this transfer market, but makes no reference about uh, the way that that issue has been treated in Congress and the way that the NCAA and Power Five have now renewed and repropagandized the transfer issue as a terrible thing in college sports that needs to be reined in. And he also makes another important observation that has exacerbated the perception that this transfer market's out of control. And that is that during COVID, when the most sports were shut down except for the Power Five conferences, you had the NCAA granting athletes an extra year of eligibility. So the labor pool was really flooded. It was bigger than it normally would be. And you had a lot of uncertainty in where athletes fit into this bloated inventory. And so you had more activity in the transfer portal. And that unique circumstance happened to coincide with the liberalization of this transfer market. So it may things are, are, look worse than they actually are, I think. And I think even coaches like Nick Saban have, have acknowledged that. So then the article goes into the data. And the Wall Street Journal independently obtained information from 55 of the 65 Power Five schools. And of course, the Power Five are the top tier in all of college sports, and that's the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. So they got uh, data on transfers for football teams at 55 of those 65 schools. And their analysis concluded that an average of 17 players per team put their names into what's called the transfer portal. Entering that portal is the procedural mechanism through which a player announces his eligibility to be essentially recruited again as a transfer. So you have 17 players per roster on these Power 5 school rosters. And the article then points out that those same schools only took in 10 
transfers from the transfer portal. So you had many more players entering the portal than were ultimately picked up by another team on the backside. And that's important. I'm going to talk about that as well. That's really the conversion rate. And that's a low conversion rate. And it speaks to some of the emerging market dynamics in this transfer market that I believe will work themselves out. But we're judging it after less than a year. But just to, to put those numbers into a bit of perspective, on a Power 5 football roster, you have, I would say, an average of 110 players total. And I went to the USC roster and counted, and there were 110 players on the USC roster this year. So 17 of 110 is 15%. So 15% of athletes in 2021 entered the transfer portal and left the school they originally chose. And that roster size of 110 includes all players on the roster, not just scholarship athletes, because under NCAA rules, a Power 5 football program can only have 85 football players on scholarship at any one time. And the Wall Street Journal article doesn't talk about roster size. I think that's an important thing to understand. But So you have 15% of the overall roster. And if you look at just the scholarship athletes, 17 out of 85, assuming that all 17 are scholarship athletes. And again, that's not clear. But that would be 20%. So worst case scenario in terms of the frenzy theory and the frenzy narrative, you have one out of five football players entering the transfer portal under what I think is probably the more accurate analysis. You have about 15%. And on its face and in the absence of any context or any comparison to other sports or to the general student population, that seems like a big number. And that was my wife's reaction when I went through the numbers with her. And these, of course, were mine because the article didn't talk about roster size and the percentages. But she said, boy, that's a, that's a big number, 15%, 20%. And it certainly seems that way at first blush in this isolated football-only framework. And then the article goes into some of the particular positions where you have high activity. And it talks about the emphasis on quarterbacks. And quarterbacks are so essential to the success or failure of a football team. And you have some really good quarterbacks moving around in this portal. And another thing that this article doesn't deal with is where the incentive to transfer originates. And one of the things that nobody wants to talk about is the extent of behind the scenes recruiting or poaching where a, a team and a coach who need a, a quarterback, for example, how they go about getting their interest out, their need out into the marketplace. And you're back in, into some of the same corrupt tactics and corrupting influences, at least as the NCAA sees it, that you have in the high school recruiting market. Nobody wants to talk about that, but I think that's going on as well. And then, and we're really in the very middle of the article, and this is buried here, and there are a couple of paragraphs that really are the most important paragraphs that just get a, what I would call a bump and run. But the article says, the journal analysis showed that this top-end movement, and they're talking about the, the quarterback market, isn't representative of the transfer portal at large. And then we get to something that comes within field goal range, pun intended of the truth of the incentives in this transfer market. And the article says this, most of the players on the move aren't potential starters, but reserves looking for more playing time. 
while the starting quarterback moves mainly involved upperclassmen, about 57% of outgoing transfers were freshmen or sophomores. And then they talk about the wide receiver market. And, and that's an interesting analysis that really goes, I think, more to the truth of this transfer portal in year one. And in the wide receiver market, there were 156 wide receivers. And that's a very important position. Just as quarterback's important, wide receivers are very important as well. So you had 156 uh, wide receivers entering the portal from Power 5 school. But of those 156 receivers, those Power 5 schools only took 84 of those players, which means, of course, then there were 72 receivers who jumped into the portal thinking that they were going to be picked up, but they weren't picked up. And the article says that all of those 72 receivers wound up playing at a level below the power five. They lost standing. They made a downward movement in the market by overvaluing themselves, essentially putting themselves into the transfer portal. And one of the consequences of doing that is that you risk not being picked up, which means you may not uh, have a spot on a roster, which means, of course, you don't have an athletic scholarship. That's a big deal for these athletes, but it's a small group of athletes. And that is the kind of thinking and decision-making, these athletes overvaluing themselves that markets will correct for. And I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And then we have a discussion about some other positions and linemen, offensive and defensive linemen and all that stuff. Then we get to what I think is probably the most important single sentence in this entire article. And it's only 11 words, and it says this. One big factor that prompts roster turnover is a coaching change. And then there's a discussion about uh, former Oregon coach Mario Cristobal, who left for Miami and the impact on Miami of that coaching change. But that's it. And then the article turns to these coaches, these imperial coaches in college sports, and how they sit in a position of luxury because they don't really have to worry about the transfer market because they get all the players they want. Players don't want to leave those programs. And here we're talking about Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson. And the article correctly points out that Nick Saban at Alabama or Dabo Swinney at Clemson, they're not losing sleep at night over the transfer portal. And they're not really utilizing it because they don't need to, because they can just pick and choose talent out of the high school market. And they could fill a need here and there if they need to at the transfer portal. And they're probably not going to be that broken up about players leaving because it's most likely that the players that are going to leave a program of that stature and of that market value are players who the coaches aren't that sad about losing, quite frankly. And they may view it as win-win. So there you have it. That's the sky is falling frenzy football rosters upside down narrative that the Wall Street Journal put out there yesterday. And I just want to talk about some of the important issues that this type of coverage raises and that the transfer market raises with an emphasis on the impact of coaching changes. Because that foundational issue in analyzing the transfer market gets a short paragraph and really only one important sentence, an 11-word sentence that says that, yeah, the coaching change issue is a big problem and they influence the transfer market. You got to talk about that. You absolutely have to talk about that. So I want to address that and some other things here. Uh, and I think that the data that the Wall Street Journal obtained on these 55 uh, Power 5 schools doesn't really support the narratives and the uh, sky is falling frenzy theme that's contained in, in the headline. Because when you look at this data, one of the most important takeaways is that most of the activity in this market, in this 
first year of the transfer market is the product of players, young players, freshmen and sophomores who commit to a Power 5 school and then believe that they aren't getting the playing time that they want. And I believe that that data also shows that a substantial percentage of those players who jump into the market are overvaluing themselves because the conversion rate is so low. So you have the, you know 17 players per roster entering the portal and believing they're going to land with a scholarship offer at another Power 5 school. And only 10 players are accepted by those same schools, which means that these athletes have made a bad decision and maybe they're getting some bad advice. But that that's not a big problem from the institution standpoint. If the bulk of the players who are leaving schools or a substantial percentage of them have overvalued themselves and really aren't uh, realistic power five prospects, then those schools aren't that concerned about losing them. And as I said earlier, that's win-win. And the other thing that this analysis and all these analyses of the new transfer market tend to ignore is that in this new market, there are market efficiencies that are at play here. In this new transfer market, if a player comes and their freshman or sophomore years, it looks like they're not going to make the progress that the coach thought they were going to make. Or maybe the player just didn't turn out to be as good as the school thought they were. A coach has an incentive to sit down with that player and have an honest, intelligent conversation and say, look, this isn't working here. I don't see you playing here at any point in your career. I don't want to discourage you. I don't want to say it can't happen. But as I sit here right now, I want you to know this while you have a chance to change your circumstance and make a decision that may be best for you. And I think those conversations are occurring and those are good conversations. And I think the good coaches, the coaches of integrity, who have built these programs that nobody wants to leave anyway, you know, the Nick Sabans and the Davo Swinneys of the world, I think they would have that conversation with an athlete. And they would probably do everything in their power to help that athlete land where, where the athlete wants to land. And those market inefficiencies right now, this low conversion rate, I think they'll work themselves out. I don't see it as a big deal. And the other thing that I'll note, and Nick Saban said this out loud, I think this was in the presser before the CFP playoff game last year against Georgia. The, the transfer issue came up. It was a boogeyman question. Oh, is this going to be the death of college sports? And Saban did a parade wave to that. But he referred to the transfer market as a quote unquote fad. And he also said, look, on a roster of 100 players or 85 scholarship players, you're going to have 15 kids who are unhappy. That's just the nature of the beast. And it's part of the business. It's always been part of the business. And now for the first time, both the programs and the coaches on the one hand and then the players and, and their families on the other have a way to move in the market, to have true market mobility where they can find that fit. So this is really about fit on so many levels. And sometimes the initial decision doesn't lead to a good fit. And this new transfer market provides the potential for market efficiencies where more people can be better off in the aggregate, both the, the institutions, the programs, the coaches on the one hand, and then the athletes on the other. That's a good thing. And then the elephant in the room in this article and this whole discussion about the transfer market, this new market, is the direct influence of coaching changes on athletes' decisions to enter the transfer portal. So you have this one sentence that says, yeah, it's a big factor. These coaching changes are a big factor, but the article doesn't explain why. And it doesn't talk about the extent of the movement and the mobility in the head coaching market in the Power Five. And there's some things about this entire 
decision-making process that's important to identify before we talk about why coaching changes have such a profound impact on the transfer portal. And that is that when players are making decisions about where to go to school, coming out of high school, if they're a high-value football player, they're choosing coaches and systems and programs and platforms, not institutions per se. And that's one of the great myths. And one of the things that the NCAA used to justify the old system where a player who wanted to transfer was penalized quite severely, one of the justifications for that was that this decision that athletes made coming out of high school was an education-based decision. And they should be making their decision based on the quality of the academic institution, the academic fit, and that million-dollar degree that they're going to get on the backside of their wonderful experience as a student athlete. So the NCAA's defense of that old and what I think is a terrible system was based on this fantasy world that ignored the realities of the decisions that the, both the institutions and the coaches on the one hand and the players and their families on the other hand were making. So what the NCAA was saying outright was that if you want to transfer because the coach that you committed to left then you're transferring for the wrong reason. And we do not want to have a policy that promotes that bad value. We want to send the message that the decision you should be making is a decision to attend the university itself as a student athlete and that the academic criteria should always rise above the athletic criteria in your decision-making process. And that's just one of the grand lies that the NCAA has been telling itself and the public for decades. And in the recruiting process, you have coaches paying lip service to the academic side of it. But what, what you're more likely to hear or what you're more likely to see in their public relations propaganda are the number of players from that program who wind up making a living playing football in the NFL. This is a business decision. And it's a decision that is based in large part on the athletes finding a pathway that increases the likelihood that they could be playing football for a living. And I just want to say this again, I've said it in prior episodes, coaching changes are just a bitch for the athletes. And they are put in a really difficult position because not only are these athletes choosing programs and coaches, they're choosing styles of play that could accentuate the particular skill set that an athlete brings to the college football market. And they want to be in a system where their strengths can be accentuated and their limitations minimized. And they're going to do whatever they have to do to find that environment. If they find that at a high school and they go to a coach that's providing that and then that coach leaves, that's a huge problem for these athletes and they will transfer either following the coach who left or finding another program that has the system and all of the things that that athlete is looking for. And in that regard, there's another important aspect of this article. It's something that the article doesn't talk about at all. And as the NCAA and the Power Five have repackaged the skies falling narratives around name, image, and likeness and transfers, they have tried to link those two issues and have tried to put out into the public consciousness this false narrative that athletes' decisions to transfer are being being driven 
in whole or in part by nil deals, that some school is going to steal a player away by giving them a better name, image, and likeness deal. This article doesn't address that at all. And I think the reason it doesn't is because there's zero evidence to support that. It's just another skies falling narrative. And there's nothing in the data that, that this article used and that the Wall Street Journal acquired and the conclusions that they drew from it that makes any link, any link to the reasons that athletes transfer and the name, image, and likeness market because that's not the overriding consideration for the athletes. They want playing time. They want exposure. They want to be in a system with a coach and a program that increases the likelihood that they can realize their dreams. And the nil stuff, yeah, it's nice if they can get it. But that is not a, a criteria that is driving their decision making. So now let's look at the true impact uh, of these coaching changes. And I want to talk about some statistics that are not included in this article. And that is that in 2021, of the 65 Power 5 head coaches in college football, 13 of those coaches left. They either got out of the, the game altogether or they left for another school. Most of them left for another school. And 13 out of 65 is 20%. So you have basically the same percentage of head coaches leaving their Power 5 school and going to another school as you have uh, football players transferring from their school to Another school, there is as much mobility and volatility in the head coaching market at the Power 5 level as there is in the transfer portal for the athlete. And what I would have loved to have seen in this article is a deep dive into the data on the number of transfers at both the institutions where a coach left and the institution where that coach landed. And in this article, we get some numbers on the impact of Lincoln Riley's departure from Oklahoma, at least on USC. We don't know how many left Oklahoma after Riley left. But according to this article, after that coaching change was announced, you had 19 players leaving USC and then Lincoln Riley bringing in 26 New players for, through the transfer portal, including some players from Oklahoma. So in that single transition, and again, we don't have the Oklahoma numbers, you've got, what is that, 45 players making decisions as a result of Lincoln Riley's decision to leave Oklahoma and go to USC. And if you look at the total pool of players that entered the transfer portal using the Wall Street Journal's numbers, they had data from 55 of the 65 Power 5 schools. There were 17 athletes per school that transferred or entered the transfer portal. That's 935 athletes. And if you isolate on the transfer activity at the departure school and the receiving school in a coaching change, and you look at that across these 13 coaching changes, you could be looking at a huge percentage of that 935 athletes who entered the transfer portal. And that would be the defining characteristic of the transfer portal. But we don't get that because that's an inconvenient topic. 
And there are no restrictions on Lincoln Riley or any meaningful consequences to him. He just took the money. He went to a place where he could make more money and get a better deal. When he left Oklahoma, his compensation package was about $7.5 million a year. And he had a contract that went through 2025. And I have no idea what uh, Riley's recruiting pitch is, but a lot of these head coaches have the recruiting pitch down to a fine art. And when they're sitting in the living room of a prize target, the athlete and the athlete's parents, they're spouting all the values, propaganda, loyalty and commitment and, and all that stuff. And that, that market's much more sophisticated than it was when I was coming through. And I think a lot of parents would ask Lincoln Riley, well, are you going to be here when our son graduates? And I don't know how Lincoln Riley answers that question. And if the answer is, look, I am committed to Oklahoma. I'm here for the long haul. All the garbage that you hear when uh, a coach's name comes up as a potential candidate at another school. No, I'm very happy where I am. I love where I am. And then two days later, you see that he's been negotiating a contract all along. But there's very little loyalty left in the coaching market. It's get what you can, get it as quickly as you can, and do the best deal that you can. So when Riley leaves Oklahoma, which is a state school, goes to USC, which is a, is a private school, we don't get the numbers at USC, but there's some informed speculation there that suggests that he's making about $11 million a year and that he has a $110 million long-term contract at USC. And he gets some other very nice perks as well. He took the money and the wreckage that's left behind, both when USC fired its existing coach and then when Riley left Oklahoma, the wreckage that's left for the USC players who committed to the old coach and for the Oklahoma players who committed to Riley is for the players to figure out Lincoln Riley isn't being treated as a disloyal market participant and turning his back on his athletes at Oklahoma. He's just participating in the market because this is America and that's what you do in America unless you are a power five football or men's basketball player. And now I want to turn to another important issue, and that is how these issues get framed in a way that isolates the football and men's basketball markets outside of the rest of the college sports marketplace and the higher education marketplace. And a thought just came to me as I'm reading this article. These issues arise in the context of higher education. So I was curious about what transfer rates are for the general student population. And remember, so much of the NCAA's propaganda in talking about trying to move the business model into the 21st century is that we want to treat these athletes like any other students are treated. That was one of the justifications for the nil compensation campaign that the NCAA disingenuously launched in 2019. We want to treat these athletes the same way. That uh, level playing field Act that Ohio Republican Representative Anthony Gonzalez and uh, Missouri Democrat Emanuel Cleaver put out in, I believe it was 2020, was built on that premise. The level playing field was a level playing field between the revenue-producing athletes and regular students, and we want to treat these athletes as regular students. But they don't, and they're not going to because these athletes aren't regular students. They are elite, highly skilled, talented laborers in an entertainment product that's very sophisticated and that the beneficiaries of that entertainment product want 
absolute iron-fisted control over. And that's the purpose behind all of these athlete limitations, the compensation limits, the mobility limitations, all of the eligibility rules that control the labor force in football and men's basketball. And I find it interesting that when these kinds of discussions come up now uh, on transfer and nil and all that stuff, we're not talking anymore about the comparison to regular students and what their liberties are, what their freedoms are. We're only looking at it through the lens of the sky's falling narratives being painted and uh, renewed by the NCAA and by the Power Five conferences. So I did some quick research on the transfer rates in higher education more broadly. There is an organization called the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center that has done some research on transfer rates across sectors in higher education. They look at two-year schools, four-year schools, transfer among and between the, the various component parts of higher education. And uh, the data that this clearinghouse has put together shows that there is enormous movement in the transfer market, students going from institution to institution. When you look at the four-year schools, you have 36% of students who enter a four-year school transferring within six years. They look at a six-year window, which is similar to the way that the NCAA looks at graduation rates. So it's not apples to apples, but you have this transfer mobility. And what's interesting about the way that they talk about that, they use the word mobility and they point out that mobility, the ability of a student to transfer to another school, whether it's going four-year to four-year, four-year to two-year, or two-year to four-year, whatever it is, is in the aggregate a really good thing from an outcome standpoint because it enhances educational choice. It enhances the ability for students to find that pathway, whatever that pathway is, to a degree that is going to lead to a better life. So mobility is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And it is entirely consistent with the broader purposes and philosophies of higher education. And some of the data is a little confusing, but I interpreted it to mean when you focus just on transfers from one four-year school to another four-year school, you're looking at something on the order of 20% of students that do that. And that's consistent with the transfer activity among athletes and the transfer activity among head coaches. So there is a lot of mobility now, and that's only a bad thing when you look at it through the lens of the big-time powerful football interests and the beneficiaries of the athlete labor. In every other context, it's a wonderful thing and entirely consistent with the goals of higher education and principles of American economic liberties and free markets and all the things that make this country Great. Would the Wall Street Journal characterize that mobility, that transfer market mobility in higher education as a frenzy? Would they say that it has turned college enrollment on its head, upside down? Is this an upheaval in the market? No, no, they wouldn't say that. They would probably say it's, it's a good thing because it's consistent with the values of higher education. And then the other thing I think that's really important here is a comparison of the transfer activity between uh, Power 5 football and then non-revenue sports. And the NCAA on its website has some data that it puts out there. And I always use NCAA data with a caveat because you don't know how the numbers are crunched. But this is NCAA data, so they can't refute it. And they looked at the transfer numbers for 2021 in all of the sports 
that the NCAA sponsors, and they have an absolute raw number of transfers in that sport than a percentage of transfers among the total population of players in that sport. And there's some really interesting results here. And it's not clear if these percentages are based on overall roster size or just scholarship limits. I'm guessing it's overall roster size. I think that would be the more accurate way to look at it. And in 2021, 16% of big-time football players transferred or entered into the transfer portal. That's consistent with the numbers that the Wall Street Journal got, which were at about 15% when you're looking at the whole roster, not just scholarship players. So 16% and the Wall Street Journal characterized that transfer activity as a frenzy that is turning college football rosters upside down, resulting in unprecedented upheaval. And it was a craze turning football into a confusing nationwide game of musical chairs. I mean, the the hyperbole was really powerful in this article. But I want to compare that to some other sports. So I've identified all the sports that had double-digit percentages of transfers. So I'll just start at the bottom and work my way up. Women's volleyball, for example. 12% of the athletes in women's volleyball in 2021 entered the transfer portal. That's comparable to the 16% of FBS football players. Women's tennis, 12%. Men's tennis, 13%. Men's soccer, 13%. Beach volleyball, 15%. And remember, in these non-revenue sports, outside of the, the five that have been historically restricted, including football and men's basketball, but in these other non-revenue sports, these athletes aren't subject to any restrictions. They can transfer more than once if they want to. So these numbers are part of a pattern that's been in place for years. And you don't have this new transfer market that is an emerging market like you have with football. So again, I think there are going to be market efficiencies in the football market that over time will work themselves out and you'll see that 15, 16% transfer rate come down a little bit. But given these unique circumstances in 2021 and the first year of this transfer market for football, and you compare it to these other sports, the uh, sky is falling narrative that's painted with respect to football and also men's basketball looks ridiculous. So if 15, 16% in football is this terrible thing, then why isn't it a terrible thing for beach volleyball or men's soccer or men's tennis or women's tennis or women's volleyball? You know, and, and there are other other sports where the percentage is high. You have softball at, a, at 11%. Is that a problem? Is that a frenzy? Is that an existential threat to the stability of the softball marketplace? But the way this article was constructed and the way that other articles following the same narrative are constructed, those facts don't matter. What matters is that a person looking at this article and reading the headline, the transfer frenzy that is turning college football rosters upside down, is all you need because then you get the association transfer in football is bad. And I just don't think that narrative holds up when you compare this transfer market to other transfer markets in college sports and to transfer markets more broadly in higher education. And I think that's a problem. It's a problem because we are accepting these narratives without any critical examination. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. And I just want you to know that you can find me at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. I have a blog that I wrote in from 2019, early 2019 to mid 
2021. And you can check that out if you'd like. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please shoot me an email. You can do that at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.